Good morning. Uh, if you're a student, you're dismissed to go with Miss Ivy and Mr. Nick and Miss Sherry. Sorry, Mr. Larry's not teaching today. So uh, <laughs> your fan club is sad. Hello, Carter. Uh, uh, y'all come on in. There's some good seats up here. Nancy bathed this week, so there's some right up here. Oh, y'all come on in. Welcome. I greet you in the name of my Savior. I'm glad you're here today. A uh, couple of quick things. First of all, uh, Michael Shira, where are you? Um, we need to get you a bumper sticker that says Bellevue or Second Prez. So if we could put that on the back of your car, that'd be a blessing. Just uh, let the people that you're road raging with think you go there. So um, that'd be good. Um, and, Kroger. <laughs> and Kroger, yeah, yeah. Uh, second of all, and I mean these two things sincerely, um, thank you, thank you, thank you for your faithful, generous giving to the life of the church. Um, our little church, we don't make a big deal about money. I don't think we're supposed to. I'm not saying anything about anybody else, but that's not what we're supposed to do. The Lord will provide what we need, and He has been not just faithful to do it, but crazy faithful. And uh, we're doing great, and it's because God has put it on your heart. It's because God has blessed you, and you should give, because you are the recipients of great blessings. Thank you for being obedient to respond to the blessings God has poured out upon your lives and given a, a a part of that to the ministry of this church. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, we're, just, we're just very blessed and uh, God is meeting all of our needs and we're very happy and thankful about it. And then also, Kim Bowden, you and Jerry, thank y'all for all the events. Uh, a couple. Of, I meant to say something last week and I just, I just have too many things to say. But uh, last or two weeks ago, we had a ladies' event at their home and I, I can't remember when we've had a more... I had, to, I had to go and be the bingo number caller dude, and that was horrifying. But other than that, uh, it was a wonderful, lovely evening. And I'll bet, no kidding, half, 25, uh, you know, that's half the ladies in our church were there. And uh, it really was great. And I just want to say thank y'all. Thank you for hosting that. That was wonderful. Um, I think that's all I'm supposed to say. Lord, I hope so. Okay, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, I want you to turn to 2 Kings. I don't normally read passages this long, but we're going to read this today. Because there's a, uh, I feel like that's what we're supposed to do. And so in just a minute, I'm going to read 2 Kings, part of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. And you can follow along, if you will, with your copy of the scriptures. Um, last week, we talked about Abraham and his faith. And we talked about the challenge that Abraham faced. The challenge of believing God's promises in light of impossible circumstances. 99, other than maybe George Burns, 99-year-old babies. And yet have babies. Right? They don't have babies. And yet God promised Abraham 
that you're going to have a son. And you're going to have that son through Sarah, your old barren wife. And Abraham faced the dilemma of looking in the mirror and looking at his wife and looking at a hundred years of track record and then looking at the promises of God. And what do I do? What do, what do I do with that? My, my impossible circumstances and the promises of God. And God said to Abraham in, in Genesis 18, Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return. I, the Lord, am going to return to you in a year. And when I come back, your wife Sarah is going to be holding your baby son. That's my promise to you. And a year later, the Lord came back. And Sarah was standing there holding Abraham's baby son. We looked last week also at how we apply that as followers of Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that if you are Abraham's child, if you are Abraham's descendant, the calling of God that God placed upon Abraham to believe his promises, God's placed that, promise, that calling upon you too. The exact same plan or calling or way of living that God gave to Abraham, He's given to me and you. He wants us in the light of impossible circumstances. He wants us to believe His promises. Now you got to know His promises before you can believe them. But then once you know them, God wants us to believe them. That's the life that God has called us to. A life of believing God's promises. A life of faith. That's the way the Bible would say it. Um, in Romans 1, Paul says, The just are called to live by faith. Those that God has justified, they are called to live a life of faith. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, Paul says, It is impossible to please God Without living by faith. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, We live by faith, not by sight. So I wanted to build on that idea that we looked at last week of facing impossible circumstances, being given the promises of God, and trusting those. Rather than trusting our eyes, living by sight, how can I learn to live by faith? So I'm going to read this passage, and I want you to stay with me. If you'll listen to it, it'll change your life. It's a good deal. This is a good, this, it's one of my favorite passages. I want you to, to listen to it. Let me give you just a little background. This passage is talking about a time in the history of Israel, the people of God, specifically the northern tribes called the northern kingdom. Um, they had been in existence for about 500 years. And 
if you could, you know, when you look at your stock market thing and sometimes it's this, well, it's supposed to, you know, do like that, but sometimes it just keeps going steady, 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 steady down. Well, Israel, for 500 years, steady, 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 steady down. They had not done good since, their ex since they were created as a, as a nation, as a people group. They were in a continual decline, continual increasing darkness, disobedience, discouragement, despair, and they were always on the brink of disaster. They just went from one almost disaster to the next almost disaster. Uh, and this had been going on for 500 years. Um, what I find remarkable, if you'll read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, is how during those 500 years, Israel continually said, no thank you. I'll say it that way. What they really said is screw you. But no thank you to your... They said no thank you to God. No thank you to your ways. No thank you to your priorities. No thank you to your protection and your provision. No, we want to do it. Our lady walked in here today. And as she was walking in, she said, My daughter's wonderful. But you know, she likes to live life her own way. She's going to do things her own way. That is the, the, the title for the history of Israel. They are going to do things their own way. They didn't want God to be their boss. And because they continually lived life contrary to the ways of God, the plans of God, the rules of God, the laws of God, the priorities of God, and they chose to live life their own way, their, their kingdom continually declined. And yet, throughout those 500 years, what is amazing to me is God's continual, persistent, passionate attempts to say, but I still love you. I'm still for you. I still am committed to you. I want to forgive you. I want to restore you. I want to bless you. I am not going to give up on you. You've got a head as hard as a granite bowling ball. But I still love you and I'm still committed to you. That's what 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles basically says. God continually sent prophets and events into the life of the people of God. Even in the midst of their most horrid lifestyles and behavior and values and priorities to just, he continually was reaching out to them. This is an example of God reaching out to the people of God when they are committed as they can be to going in the opposite direction. Now let me give you just a couple of thoughts here before we read this. Number one, we're going to read about a siege. The people of an enemy nation called Aram or Aram they lived north east of Israel and they were one of Israel's most vicious enemy nation, enemy neighbors. And they, had, they were continually giving the Israelites very terrible uh, times, relationships. They were horrible people. 
And they were continually attacking and conquering the Israelites. And this is an example of that. And they came down and they, their army surrounded the capital of Israel, which was called Samaria. And they, uh, they laid siege. Rather than trying to tear the city down, which would cost a lot of soldiers' lives and a lot of resources, they said, we'll just wait you out. And they, their army surrounded the, uh, uh, the, 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 the capital of, of Israel, Samaria. And this went on for four or five years, this siege. So it was a bleak, bad, tough uh, time. Um, there was a very severe, the result of a four or five uh, year, we don't know exactly how long it was, but for a number of years, the result of a prolonged extended siege is a severe famine. And when I tell you that there was a famine going on in this city, uh, after a number of years, everything's gone. There is no food. And they are starving literally dead. You're going to see how severe it is. It's very important as I read this for you to keep in mind that a shekel was worth a month's wages. So you would work, Larry, for your company for 30 days... And at the end of the 30 days, your boss would give you one shekel. Okay, it's very important that you, this, that you get that, okay? Um, it's also important for you to know in here, I'm going to read to you, that uh, 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 they talk about selling the horse of a donkey. <laughs> okay? Uh, things are so bad that they're eating their livestock and, and they've gotten down to eating the head of some of their livestock. A, a trained prize valuable Egyptian war horse the whole horse a few years earlier you would buy for 150 shekels okay so keep that in mind that you'd buy a war horse that you would use in war and you get the whole horse and he's alive and that only cost 150 shekels a few years earlier okay so that's very important that you get this information the last thing we're going to read about is that it gets so bad that uh, they result in cannibalism. And uh, that people are eating each other. And normally, that's very, uh, there's, it's well documented in that part of the world at this time when severe famines occurred, people resulted in eating their, eating one another. And who they would eat is the, the, the youngest people, the, the most helpless people which were babies, children. And uh, so you're going to read about that. So let me, let me read it to you real quickly. You follow along, if you will. I'm going to try to hurry. said, later on, King Ben-Hadad, that's the king of Aram, mustered his army and he besieged Samaria. That's the capital of the northern kingdom, the capital of Israel. And this siege resulted in a great famine in the city. And the siege lasted so long, a number of years, that a donkey's head cost 80 shekels. 80 months of hard labor. That's what they were paying for a donkey's head. Not the whole donkey, just the head. Okay, uh, And a cup of bird poop cost five shekels. You would give somebody five months income to get a cup of bird poop. People are so hungry. One day the king of Israel king walking along the city wall and the lady called out to him, Please help me, O king. 
He said, if the Lord doesn't help you, what can I do? I've neither grain nor wine to give you. But the king asked, what's the matter? Tell me your story, is what he's saying. She replied, this lady here said to me, let's eat your son today and my son tomorrow. So we cooked and ate my son. But the next day I said, kill your son so we can eat him. But she hid him. Hearing this, the king tore his clothes. And as he walked along the wall, the people could see that he was wearing burlap under his robe. May God strike me and kill me if I don't kill Elisha today. The king vowed Elisha was the prophet of God that was living in the city of Samaria at this time. He associated God's, he associated this uh, siege and this famine and all this horrid all the horrid consequences of the siege and the famine, he associated with God's punishment, and he associated God's punishment with the prophet of God, who had been telling him, you need to change your life. You need to start living right. If you start living right and seeking after God, these things will stop, is what Elijah had been telling him. And so he said, he got so discouraged and frustrated and was in such anguish, and he said, I'm going to kill the prophet of God today, Elisha. Elisha was sitting in his house with the uh, uh, elders of Israel when the king sent a messenger to summon him. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said, a murderer, that's the king, has sent a man to kill me. And when he arrives, please shut the door and keep him out. And soon his master, the king, will come, will follow him, will come. When Elisha, uh, while Elisha was speaking, the messenger arrived. And then the, king, then the king followed, sort of implied. And the king said, all of this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And Elisha replied, listen to the Lord's words. In 24 hours, the markets of, in, the, in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of flour will cost one shekel. And 12 quarts of barley will cost one shekel. Those are still very inflated prices. Normally a shekel would buy 50 quarts of flour. And a shekel would buy 100 quarts of barley. So they're still very inflated because of the length of the famine. Okay, But it's a lot better. Okay, you see how much different it is. To You were paying, what was it, uh, uh, how many, uh, 80 shekels for a donkey's head. Okay, at least now you get some real grain. Um, so he said, let's say, listen to the words of the Lord. 24, in 24 hours in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of flour will cost one shekel and 12 quarts of barley will cost one shekel. And the king's assistant said to Elisha, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. But Elisha replied, Sir, you will see this happen, but you will not eat any of it. Now there were four lepers sitting at the city gate. And they said to one another, Why should we sit here and wait to die? We're going to starve if we sit here, and we're going to starve if we return into the city. So let's go and surrender to the army of Aram. If they let us live, good. 
And if not, we'll die anyway. So at twilight, they set out for the Aramean camp. But when they arrived at the camp, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of Aram to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. And the king of Israel, I'm sorry, the king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptians to come and attack us, they cried. So they panicked and they fled into the night, abandoning their tents and animals and supplies. When the four lepers arrived at the Aramean camp, they went into tent after tent, eating and drinking and carrying off silver and gold and clothing and hiding it. Finally, they stopped and said to each other, This is wrong. This is a day of good news and we aren't sharing it with others. If we wait until the morning, something bad's going to happen to us. Basically, they believed in karma. Uh, let's see here. Um, let's go and inform the people of the palace. So they went back and they told the gatekeepers the news. We went to the uh, our Aramean camp and it was empty. The animals were tethered and the tents were all set up, but no one was there. And then the gatekeepers shouted the news to the palace. Hearing the news, the king said, Those Arameans know we are starving, so they have left their camp and hidden in the fields. They are expecting us to leave the city. And then while we're out, they'll capture the city and capture us as well. One of his officers replied, We better send out some scouts to check this out. Let them take five of the remaining horses. It won't matter if we lose them. So chariots were prepared and the scouts were sent out to see what had happened to the Aramean army. They went all the way to the Jordan River. That's 25 miles. They went all the way to the Jordan River following a trail of clothes and equipment. Uh, let's see. They, following a trail of clothes and equipment that the Arameans had thrown away as they rushed out and fled. The scouts returned and confirmed the report. And then the people of Samaria rushed out and plundered the Aramean camp. And it was true that on that day, six quarts of flour cost one shekel and 12 quarts of barley cost one shekel, just as the Lord had promised. The king, but he was tram- uh, appointed his assistant to control the traffic at the city gate. But he was trampled to death as the people rushed out. So all occurred... Exactly as God's prophet had said. He had said by this time tomorrow in the markets of Samaria. Six quarts of flour will cost one shekel. And twelve quarts of barley will cost one shekel. The king's assistant had replied. That couldn't happen. Even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. And the prophet of God said. You will see it happen. But you will not eat any of it. And so it was. For the people trampled him to death. At the city gate. What are you supposed to do with that story? Why is that worth reading? I want to give you just a few thoughts. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 143. And it's a psalm that David wrote. And David wrote it during a time of horrible uh, pain and darkness and suffering in his life. And he's crying out to God and he's saying, God, I'm getting beat to death by my enemies. I'm, I'm filled with terror and darkness and, 
and pain. My life is horrible. Everything is terrible. God, help me. And then he makes this statement in Psalm 143. David says, My enemy has pursued my soul, crushing my life to the ground, and making me dwell in darkness like those that have been long since dead. Within me my spirit grows faint and dismayed, but I choose to remember the days of old. I meditate on all of your deeds, O Lord, and I consider the works of your hands. David came to a place in his journey with God where he discovered something that would be so good for all of us to discover. And that is that when we're going through incredibly difficult, dark, painful, discouraging circumstances, we can find, like David found, great strength and great faith by rehearsing the mighty deeds of the Lord in the past. When you and I get into these situations where we are under attack and things are horrible on the inside and things are horrible on the, out, on the outside and, and horrible on the inside and we don't know what to do and we don't believe that we can survive, David says he learned to survive by rehearsing the mighty acts of the Lord in the past. That's why we read stories like this in 2nd in, in, uh, uh, Kings chapter 6 and 7. We're rehearsing the mighty deeds of the Lord. That's number one. Number two. Did you notice who the king blamed? This dude's name was Jehoram. I didn't ever mention his name, but we know if you trace the timeline of the kings, this dude's name was King Jehoram. He was a horrible king. In fact, the prophet of God called him a murderer. He said, this murderer is sending somebody to try to kill me. The reason uh, the prophet of God called him a murderer is that he had murdered lots of people. And he had led the people of God away from God. He had turned away uh, from God. He had turned away from God's laws and God's ways. And yet, when things got terrible, when the harvest of living a life that is contrary to the ways of God, when he was experiencing that harvest, who did he blame? God and God's prophet. How about you and me? Who do we blame when things start falling apart? We live in a very angry world filled with people that are so quick to blame 
everybody else for the consequences of their own terrible choices. We live in a very angry world filled with people that are so quick to blame everybody else for the consequences of their own bad choices. Proverbs chapter 19 says this, People ruin their lives by their own foolishness, but they're angry at God. People ruin their lives by their own bad or foolish choices. And yet, they're not angry at the person in the mirror. They're angry at somebody else. And ultimately, they're angry at God. Adam and Eve. I'm mad as all get out because I've gotten thrown out of the garden. You know whose fault it is? My mate, the snake, God. It's not my fault. Saul could not, King Saul could not have ruined his life more and thrown away limitless blessings from God. Who did he blame? It's David's fault. It's his children's fault. It's, the, it's his soldier's fault. It's his friend's fault. Never Saul's fault. And I could give you example after example after example of people who ruined their lives because of foolish decisions, but rather than owning their own choices and consequences, it's somebody else's fault. It's the school system's fault. It's my mate's fault, my ex's fault, my parents' fault, the government's fault, uh, ISIS's fault. It's somebody's fault, but it's not my fault. Who do you and I blame for the problems and pain that fill our lives? I will say this to you. The happiest People that I know are people that don't say how come. Instead, they say, what now? The happiest people I know don't say how come. They say, what now? What do we need to do now? We had a bad deal. We can spend all day figuring out who to blame. Or we can spend all day figuring out what to do next. How to fix it. Who do we blame for the problems and pain in our lives? Number three. I got two, two more. We're through. Number three. I think the, two, one of the two most significant statements in this chapter is when the king says, why should I wait on God anymore? I've waited, and I've waited, and I've waited, and I've waited. Why should I wait on God anymore? Why should I wait on God anymore for a job? Why should I wait on God anymore for defense? 
and protection? Why should I wait on God anymore for deliverance? Why should I wait on God anymore for a mate? Why should I wait on God anymore to change my children's lives? Why should I wait on God anymore to change my mate's life? Why should I wait on God anymore to heal me? Why should I? God has not come through. Why should I wait on God anymore? Is there an area of your life where you're asking that? Where you're on the verge of not waiting on God Anymore. I wish I could give you some magic. Hocus pocus. Response to that. Waiting on God's heart. Hardest thing you'll ever do. But I can tell you this. In Isaiah 64. God says. No one has seen a God. Like Jehovah. Who works. On behalf of those. Who wait for Him. Micah 7 says, I look to the Lord for help. I wait in confidence for God to save me. And wait on the Lord and He will help hear me. Psalm 37 says, Wait on the Lord and He will help you. And all who wait on God will possess the land. And in Psalm 63, the psalmist says, I will wait upon the Lord For your strong hand holds me securely. I will wait upon the Lord. For your strong hand holds me securely. And Isaiah 41 says, Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. I am not going to stand here and tell you that waiting on God is not hard. Because it is. I am going to stand up here and tell you that God gave me four promises right there. That if I will wait on Him, He has given me His word of honor. He stakes His reputation on it. Larry Ray, if you'll wait on me and not rush ahead, not get nervous, not get frustrated, not give up, but if you'll wait on me, I promise you that I will take care Of you and your future. Either I'm going to believe the promise of God. Or I'm not. And either you're going to believe the promise of God. Or you're not. And that's the choice that we get to make. And the last thing I want to say is this. uh, That assistant to the king. When he heard the promise of God. Through Elisha. That tomorrow. The, 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 the price of food is going to drop down drastically. The, the, the message being, God's going to fix this. And He's going to fix it by tomorrow. That, that, that's basically what that assistant... And this problem was so big. And this problem had gone on so long. That the assistant of the king said... If God opened up the windows of heaven and poured out every last resource that He has available, it couldn't fix this. The problem is too big and the problem has gone on too long. You ever feel that way? You got things in your life? Sure. 
God can, you know, he can help you when you got a cold. Or, uh, you know, he'll help you find your phone if it's lost. Or he'll help you if you're driving to Florida. He'll, you know, there are things, there are things that God can help us with, you know, right? But there are other things. I've been married to the same person for 42 years. They will never change. My child has battled with this issue for 30 years. He'll never change. I've struggled financially since I can't remember when. It'll never change. The people that lead our country, they'll never change. There are problems that somehow I put into this basket. Yes, God can help me. They're not too big and they haven't gone on too long. But there's another basket. And in this basket there are things they're too big. They're too big. And they've gone on too long. And God cannot change it. What in my life is too big? What in my life has gone on too long? So big and so long that God, His power and His wisdom and His love are no match for these problems. I'm not talking about faith this name it, claim it, buffoonish, idiotic, me, me, me faith. It's all about me. I need a Cadillac. I need a mansion. I need everything that I want right now. I'm not talking about that kind of, that silliness. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about a faith that flows out of my understanding of how God has dealt with others in the past. A grow how God uses that to create within my heart a growing confidence that God loves me like that. And God can help me like that. And God is strong enough and He is wise enough and He is committed to me enough that He will he can help me, and He will help me. Do I really believe that God can do great and mighty things in my life? Do I really believe that God can do great and mighty things in your life? Or do I just write you off? You'll never change. Things will never get better for you. Your, ne- your marriage will never be healed. Your children will never do better. Or do I believe that God can change things? Not the way I necessarily want, but the way that He wants. Do I believe that God can make things different and better? Or do I let the, the size and the length of my problems, my sin, my failure, my enemies... Determine what God can do.
I don't believe there's a more important question that you and I can ask ourselves. Is God big enough to make a difference in my life, especially in the areas where things are really bad? And it's really been bad a long time. Either I choose to believe that He can, or I choose to believe that He can't. David said, Read the stories of old. The stories where God did big things, great things, miraculous things in the lives of others when the problems were way bigger than your problems and my problems and they had been going on way longer than they've gone on in your life and in my life. And if God can help them, He can help you. That's how David got through this. And that's how you and I can get through it too. One last thing and we're through. That king's assistant. The voice of that king assistant. If God opened up the windows of heaven, he couldn't meet that need. Do I ever play that voice? Is that my voice? In other people's lives? Nancy, things will never get better. Sarah, things will never change. Ashley, there's no hope. Hunker down, dig you a foxhole, burrow down, and just just keep your head down and and just suffer through it because it's never going to get better. Is that my voice? Is that my voice in people's lives? I don't want to be that voice in your life. I don't want to be that voice in my wife's life or my daughter's life. Or God forbid I don't want to be that voice in my grandson's life. I want to be a voice that says, we might not know what God's going to do, but by God, He will do something. It's going to be great. Let's wait on Him. And let's see what He does. I want to be that voice. And I want you to be that voice. I need that voice in my life. And you need that voice in your life. And you and I better find some people that can be that voice in our lives. And we better be that voice in some other people's lives. I don't think there's a more important role that we'll ever play in each other's lives. Okay? Um, Morgan? You and Rachel come up here and help me. Please. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Speaking of the promises of God. God says in the book of Acts. Those that call upon the name of the Lord. Will be saved. That's a promise from God. Sort of simple. Those that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Either I believe that that's true or I choose to believe it's not true. But God's made that promise. And anyone in this room that has ever called upon the name, well, what's that exactly mean? Well, we can sit down and talk about that sometime because there's a lot of discussion on that. But at least it means, God, I need your help. My life is a mess. I need you in it. And I look to you to do in me and for me that which I cannot do for myself. 
I'm trusting you. If that describes your journey with God, there's been a moment in your life when you said, God, I call upon you to save me, to help me, to befriend me, to adopt me into your family, to forgive my sins. If that's something that you've done, you're invited to come and eat bread and drink wine and to remember what Jesus did for you on the cross, to give Him thanks and to rejoice in the bright future that God has promised to give you and to give me. So you're invited to come. Uh.